Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown. Today I'll be speaking with Muzmil Hussein, who is the co-author with Philip Howard of the new book, Democracy's Fourth Wave, Digital Media and the Arab Spring. I hope you enjoy the interview. Welcome to New Books in Political Science. My name is Heath Brown, and I have the real pleasure to speak today with Muzmil Hussein. Muzmil, how are you doing? I'm doing well. It's very nice to speak to you, Heath. Uh, I'm calling in from Seattle right now, so it's uh, about afternoon here, so I'm be chatting with you. Okay, yeah, it's a, real, it's a real pleasure. Pleasure to have read the book, uh, which I look forward to talking to you about, because I think it's uh, you know incredibly timely, and that's actually one of the things that I wanted to talk to you about. But before we get to this, um, maybe you can introduce yourself a little bit, where you are. We know you're physically right now in Seattle, but um, where you are institutionally, uh, where you've been institutionally, and, and just a little bit about yourself. Oh, well, let's see. Um, I am currently finishing up here at the University of Washington in Seattle as uh, part of the doctoral program in communication, uh, the Department of Communication. Uh, but originally, you know, the work that we'll be chatting about today as well, um, that started many years ago uh, while I was at the other UW, the University of Wisconsin at Madison. Um, so for maybe seven or eight years now, I've been very much kind of interested and involved in research on digital media and politics. So I um, started working on that topic uh, immediately when I moved out here about five years ago. So, um, so that's what I work on is uh, digital media and politics. And I'm actually kind of uh, institutionally moving soon as well. I'm starting up at the University of Michigan Ann Arbor as an assistant prophet. The Department of Communication Studies there uh, also has a joint appointment in the Center for Political Studies, which is part of the ISR, the Institute for Social Research. So kind of in between spaces, but, uh, you know, it's been an exciting and interesting time for me. Yeah, well, congratulations. That is that is wonderful news. Um, you didn't write this book alone. Um, so how did you and Phil Howard come to work together on this book? He uh, he is your co-author. So uh, what is the collaboration, the basis of? Sure. Phil, Phil Howard is actually uh, my one of my closest advisors here in Madison, and we've been working together for well over five years now. Um, and this work, this book we're speaking about today, actually is a... Uh, an outcome of a multi-year project um, that is housed uh, at the, uh, in, in the NSF-funded uh, project on information technology and political AFLOC. So the project is broader, focusing on uh, more than just the Arab Middle East or North African countries. Um, and since 2009, we've been working on several reports and publications and analyses about the different ways in which digital media has meshed with civil society in uh, a host of developing uh, countries that exist on a spectrum of uh, democratization and uh, authoritarianism. So um, the work for this book actually draws on sort of three to four years of work that has been happening since before the edge. Great. It's, you know, it's, um, it seems in, in my reading of the book that one of your objectives is to seek out some middle ground between Sort of the, the, the parties that, that give credit for just about everything connected to the Arab Spring to Twitter, mm-hmm. and on the other side, those that discount social media as essentially irrelevant. 
So uh, when you began this book, um, what did you make of the commentary about social media, this sort of larger, often not, not uh, scholarly conversation, but there was a lot of conversation that was going on out there. How would you characterize these, these major sort of, uh, uh, public discussions of the, the topic of the book? Sure. Um, well, the public discussion actually, you know, traces its history even to uh, local politics here in the U.S. You know, ever since digital media started to mesh with uh, U.S. electoral politics, we've had this sometimes heated but necessary discussion about, um, you know, what are the consequences of increased uses of new media platforms. So, in that sense, you know, I've seen a, a direct parallel, you know, in discussing these issues internationally as well as the discussion seems to divide in sort of two diametric avenues, uh, one really focusing on the empowering aspect of digital media, and on the other hand, uh, the very sophisticated and um, threatening ways in which state powers also come down and try to control these, uh, uh, these new platforms and places that are physically uh, necessary and important. So, um, so we've engaged uh, with that even at the scholarly level, tried to analyze uh, or at least um, portray the both optimistic as well as the pessimistic perspective. And one of the outcomes that we hope that comes out of the book is to point at the fact that both of them do have, you know, legitimate kind of uh, observations um, based uh, based in uh, experiences of, of, of users uh, in, in very diverse spaces, but um, there may be angles that are being missed in that heated diametric uh, debate. And part of that is the story about uh, the meshing of digital media with mass media as well. Uh, and so, you know, in one of our chapters on Al Jazeera and civic journalism, we talk about the third space that is, might be a little bit overlooked between uh, the pessimistic and optimistic perspectives. The, one of the ways that you do this, and you sort of cut through some of the, um, the uh, sort of political conversations about this, is sort of the empirical focus of your work. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's a lot of political scientists that are very interested in incorporating uh, digital media or new media into their re- research, but they don't quite know how to do it. So how did you do it? Uh, what, what are the major sources of data that you looked at? You, you mentioned that this is built into a larger project. And so as someone who's, who's based, uh, who does political work, but, but you have this home in communications, what are the data sources that you look at? How did, how did you collect up the information that you then uh, went about analyzing in such an interesting way? Sure. So the data for the book actually comes from many different uh, sources, and the way the data is structured that we work through also depends on the kind of questions we're asking. So, for example, um, in our chapter focusing on how civic actors use digital media, we drew on the narratives that were themselves documented on digital spaces. So when the Earth Spring was happening, we were actively collecting and curating narratives, um, interview data, um, uh, and, and also collecting our own sort of social media analytics information on what was happening and archives at the back end. Um, so, so we were looking at that from the civic angle for the, for the chapters on how authoritarian regimes or the regimes in general have, have approached, uh, these environments. That comes from um, going through media archives, news, news archives, as well as uh, technical um, uh, sort of hacker logs about um, uh, sort of back-end uh, events that, that hackers themselves have taken note of uh, in identifying networks that were interfered with. So, so the authoritarian chapter, uh, the chapter on authoritarian regimes, interventions with digital media comes from a 
15-year period in which we documented about close to 500 cases where both democracies and authoritarian governments have initiated um, uh, on, uh, with digital media networks in many different ways. So, uh, so for each chapter, the data depends on the questions we're looking at. So, um, so we draw on many different types of data sets. One of the, um, one of, I think, the nice aspects of this book is um, you don't sort of plop yourself right down on day one mm-hmm. and, and sort of look, look ahead. You, you make this argument that there were these pre-existing um, levels of access to media, familiarity with, with media mm-hmm. that, that existed in, in some of the countries uh, that you studied. They uh, exist at different levels for different parts of each society. Mm-hmm. Um, but I wonder if you, for maybe just one of the countries that you studied, um, you could characterize the, the pre-Arab Spring mm-hmm. um, digital conversation, uh, where it was taking place. Uh, was it political? Mm-hmm. Um, it certainly wasn't uh, as as uh, revolutionary as we see it during the time period that you focus on. Mm-hmm. But what what was the what was the digital environment just before the the focus of the book, which is the Arab Spring? Uh, there are probably four big points to, that we can summarize from the period immediately, before, not immediately before, but um, about five to six years before the Arab Spring uh, really took, uh, took root. Uh, we noticed that in many different countries, there were four, four big things happening. Number one was the fact that um, even in some of the most repressive political environments, there was an increased level of international news content that was accessible and was being read um, actively by, by citizens in those environments. So things like BBC News articles and CNN coverage would be accessible online even though state media and broadcast media would, uh, were, were easier to control and censor uh, in places like Egypt. Number two, um, we also saw a rising level of networking applications being used by individual citizens. Now this is important because um, these types of technologies allow people to control their social network and, and communicate with uh, their social network in, in uh, different ways, depending on um, what they were trying to achieve. Number three, we saw civil society organizations themselves moving online. In one of our chapters, we've actually, uh, we got pretty lucky in the sense that we completed a, a map, uh, a digital map of uh, political parties in Egypt that existed online and sort of what their connections were. And then so we did a follow-up map about six months after uh, to see how the structure of the Egyptian political party uh, online communication patterns had changed. And uh, number four, we were also noticing that these spaces allowed for previously marginalized groups, feminist movements, youth movements, uh, who were, you know, had to be a lot more careful operating uh, in offline environments, were doing so online, making use of online spaces to communicate, find each other. Um, and find shared grievances and, and sometimes even mobilize long-term strategies for how they should do their work. So those four big points were, were happening for at least uh, five or six years before the spring uh, really took, took off. But then there were these dramatic things that happened, mm-hmm. and a couple of things happened in, in a, a couple of different countries, but it was in many ways the, the um, unique characteristics of social media that took those events and did something very different than what would have happened to them 20 years before or without the existence of certain social media mm-hmm. uh, devices. Um, what were those events? Um, and, and what was their, why did they, um, why did social media change the way in which those events were consumed more broadly? 
Um, generally, you know, I think it, it's an issue of speed. I mean, we, you know, revolutions have happened historically long before digital media was ever part of the narrative. But uh, but, but speed and access really changed in this round of events. And uh, we can talk in a little bit more detail about, you know, how, how this happened. So in the book, we, we uh, outline sort of maybe six uh, big points about what happened during the uh, immediate period of mobilizing around it. And that was number one, there was a preparation phase which involved activists using digital media over time uh, to build solidarity networks. And that was in place already. But in, uh, in major cases like Tunisia and Egypt, there was always an ignition phase, something that was symbolically powerful, like the, uh, uh, the case where Mohamed um, uh, immolate self-immolated himself. And these, these symbolic movements, uh, moments you know, were shared over digital media long before state media even tried to cover these events. Uh, this fed into a third kind of protest phase where both on offline networks and digital technologies were used together so, uh, by small groups to strategically organize large numbers of people to show up. Um, that moved into an international buying phase where broadcast networks uh, and, uh, and international coverage came into play, uh, where these, these local moments went international. Uh, so, so the world was paying attention very quickly. Um, uh, uh, the, Sort of the last two phases that we've uh, outlined or covered the climax phase where then regimes and, and state powers came into play to recognize that, oh look, something really important is happening. We haven't, uh, you know, uh, addressed these things in, in a, uh, uh, in, in a way to censor or to address it as a public moment. So, uh, various uh, regimes use different, uh, measures either using welfare packages or, uh, repressive techniques to try to control coverage and mobilization. And, uh, and finally, you know, after, after that period ended, there would always be a follow-on sort of information warfare, uh, phase where both state-based actors and international, uh, solidarity networks, uh, uh, started to compete over the digital environment themselves, addressing the fact that these digital networks and, and uh, spaces were important and are an important place where, um, politics were being exercised. So, uh, and, and, and now we see an, uh, a very active discussion internationally about uh, the regulations behind uh, digital spaces and access. One of the one of the things uh, the se- the section on the the response of the authoritarian regimes mm-hmm. um, I, I thought was really interesting. I want, I want to talk about that, but I wanted um, to talk a little bit about you know, the extent to which what you write about is is generalizable outside of the the. Uh, cases that you look at, you, you talk a little bit about this, but, but you know, you suggest that these, that this kind of um, digital activism happens in a, a series of stages. Mm-hmm. Um, how applicable is this to other parts of the world, other countries in the region, um, other technologies? Uh, mm-hmm. I know that wasn't one of your purposes of writing the book, but but I wonder if you could talk a little bit about how universal these stages in this model is. So generalizability is something we tried to take very seriously in, in the way we've argued and uh, elicited different uh, observations to support these claims. And so in our takeaway points about uh, generalizability, we limit our generalizations at this moment to the 20-plus cases in Middle East and North Africa. Um, and so, you know, we're not interested in generating a theory of democratization around particular tool like Facebook or Twitter. Uh, but we are interested in understanding how these technologies are, you know, 
socially constructed by the users as well as uh, governments who have a lot more power in uh, defining the, the macro environment in which these tools are, are deployed. So right now, you know, in our observations of the Arab Spring, we talk about the actual events that took place. And so we use, um, rather than using only a qualitative or case study approach, or on the other hand, trying to generalize to the, you know, close to 200 countries that, uh, that are, uh, that, that exist today, we focus on these 20 or so cases, um, to limit our, uh, generalizations. And so, you know, speaking of how governments have exercised control, on digital spaces in those in those countries, we know that uh, sort of four general ways. So, um, so number one, uh, some regimes, you know, uh, particularly in in Egypt, for example, exercise full network shutdown. So when uh, during sensitive moments like elections or crisis moments, rather than trying to control parts of digital media environments, they just pull the entire plugin uh, uh, and, and disable vast portions of society from being online. Uh, but there's also, you know, many, uh, uh, many other, uh, smaller ways in which they do that as well. So shutting down specific sites, like blocking access to the entire Twitter network as opposed to all digital media. Uh, or going offline to target individuals. So, so beating up bloggers or arresting folks is, uh, is a less technically savvy, but also powerful way to, uh, coerce, uh, uh citizens. Uh, well, the one that I'm most interested in these days is the, um, is the, the proxy methods of control, so going after internet service providers. So in Egypt, for example, we saw the Mubarak regime trying to coerce corporations based outside of the country itself, going after Vodafone uh, in London or uh, or, or other um, uh, internet service providers like that to, uh, to to become part of the control apparatus. So so these proxy methods are pretty complicated, but uh, uh, but are, but I think very important to continue expanding out. Uh, one of the very interesting, I forgot where it was exactly in the book, but there is this um, point at which the regimes who uh, appear to have been caught in digital terms uh, behind the curve in terms of their sophistication. Mm-hmm. And one of the steps they, they take is to try to shut down networks, mm-hmm. which results in uh, people turning out in the street because they, they don't have the information that they've been getting digitally, mm-hmm. which it seems then accelerates uh, not the digital component of this, but but the um, political change aspect of mm-hmm. this. Um, I wonder if you could walk through what those what those steps were that the different regimes took in response. You sort of highlight the, these these different categories, but but maybe there are a couple of anecdotes or particular ones that, that stick out to you. And uh, one of these regimes that that really I don't know, bungled isn't quite the right way to think about it, but whose approach showed that they really didn't understand the medium. Mm-hmm. Uh, they didn't understand technology, and as a result, exactly what they didn't want to happen did happen, even if it was, um, you know, quite quite a positive thing in terms of democracy or, or, sure. or representation. Sure. You know, I think to maybe illustrate that point uh, a little bit more, I would say let's compare uh, how Saudi Arabia and Egypt have, have approached their digital control strategies differently. Uh, in Saudi Arabia, you know, basing off of uh, the, the kind of long-term importance that the, the regime has given to uh, building a digital infrastructure, most of all inner traffic, uh, as far as we know, goes through uh, Riyadh uh, in a centrally organized uh, set of servers that control all of the traffic in, in uh, uh, 
um, and monitor the content that's being shared over the entire internet. On the other hand, in Egypt, we, for a long time, we observed, you know, commentaries of the state itself saying, you know, maybe it's good to have some of these online spaces where people can go and vent. Uh, and, and so they didn't really take uh, a very active role in, in um, having a sophisticated management uh, approach. So, uh, and in fact, fed, uh, fed part of the, uh, the access that, that uh, actors, civic actors use for democratic, uh, democratically oriented music. So, so, uh, so if we put a magnifying glass on Egypt, for example, during the Arab Spring, uh, we saw a couple of, uh, 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 things that happened that the regime may not have, uh, seen the direct outcome of. So when the regime, for example, turned off the access to the entire internet, uh, users went to their previously existing social institutions to find each other. So when people couldn't communicate on mobile phones or find each other online, they showed up at uh, Friday prayers. Uh, you know, Egypt is a, is a Muslim society, and the people have a habit of going to uh, Friday prayers in, in large numbers. So, so these these uh, religious institutions and habits ended up being mobilization tools as well. So people went to actual physical and uh, environments to find each other, and so the actual turnout on the street increased. The probably uh, peaked even uh, when the regime turned off access to digital and mobile networks. Just so much that uh, uh, we can learn about this um, uh, political phenomena that is, is certainly still underway in, in, in some ways, um, but also about technology and digital media that is applicable, um, even if some of the specific lessons about activism aren't, uh, uh, we can't universalize. Uh, we certainly can learn about a lot about how this works. What's next for you? Uh, what is your next project? Do you have a uh, a new book project that you're working on? Have you, um, are you staying in this realm? Or are you moving into another uh, area of research? What, what can we expect from you in the next uh, period of time? Myself in particular, I'm still very much fascinated with this area of work on you know, comparative international politics and uh, digital politics. So I'm, I'm interested in working at that intersection. And uh, so I can actually tell you a little bit about sort of what I've been up to the past year. So I've actually just come back to Seattle. I've only been back for maybe 10 or 11 weeks. So all of last year, I was uh, doing field work in uh, the Middle East, North Africa, and also Western Europe. And I've been paying attention to um, how Western democracies, a lot of them who have you know highly advanced industrial economies that produce uh, many of the tools that are bought by developing countries, um, uh, including Egypt and Tunisia, uh, uh, how, how these tools are being used in unintended or unintended ways that the technology producers themselves have created. So we know, for example, that censorship tools used here to block child pornography and uh, things like that are being used to do political censorship abroad. So there's an active discussion now in the aftermath of the Arab Spring to understand how to regulate or keep uh, the producers in check and, and responsible for how those tools are used abroad. So, um, so that's probably the third space uh, beyond authoritarian control and civic uses. I'm interested in the regulatory environment online uh, to manage these uh, these relationships. Well, when that that project finishes, I hope that you uh, will come back and and talk about the, the book project that uh, results from that. Uh, until then, uh, democracy's fourth wave, digital media. Uh, and the Arab Spring uh, is recently published by Oxford in their Digital Politics 
uh, series. You can get that at the Oxford University Press website or on Amazon. Ms. Mill, thank you very much for your time today. Thank you very much. It was nice speaking with you.